Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. As always, we have a great show. We have a great show lined up for you. Um, I promise that every week, and every week, I think we deliver. Um, this one I am so excited about. Um, it is another uh, musical act, which you know we've had plenty of um, musicians on and singer-songwriters. Uh, and, and I honestly, everyone we have on the show, I really like. I mean, there, there has not been a musician on where I've gritted my teeth and had to bear with it or whatever. I, I've loved them all. But this one, oh, my God, this one I dance to. I've listened to her music. I'm like, I'm such a big fan. Um, it's, uh, it is fun. It is lively. It's, it's such a blend of different genres and um, super, super excited. So I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to um, us hanging out today. Um, our guest waiting in the wings is Sammy Ray of Sammy Ray and Friends. Uh, Sammy Ray and Friends will be playing in L.A. So um, if, if you like what you hear today, and I guarantee you will, um, you do have a chance to get in there in person November 12th and 13th at the Fonda Theater. So um, mark that on your calendar. Also, today we are going to be playing their new single, If It All Goes South. Um, uh, Sammy Ray and Friends have really come up through the pandemic years. Um, they launched in 2018, uh, so they were out a little bit before the pandemic, getting things going, um, really hit their groove on Spotify. They were discovered there by their huge fan base um, and have been growing ever since. They've been touring. Their sound is a combination of classic rock, folk, funk, um, and the, the information then says, quote, unquote, sprinkled with soul and jazz. I would up that because they are very jazzy and very soulful. Um, and again, it's a huge blend. They have a rhythm section, two saxophones, keyboards, plenty of percussion. Um, Sammy and Friends is made up of Sammy Ray, who's their lead singer and incredibly talented. Uh, you have to check out their videos. She acts in the videos. She sings. And um, I, to me, I, I hear her voice as kind of a combination of Alison Krauss and Gwen Stefani. If you mix them up and put them in front of a really jazzy um, arrangement, you might come close to Sammy Ray. But Sammy Ray is unique in, into herself. Um, but the Friends is a group of um, six other musicians that are part of it, and they're very clear that they consider themselves a family. Um, they have camaraderie. Um, they are multi mutually creative. Um, and the, the end result is really upbeat and delightful. Um, their songs are... It's an interesting blend. Emotionally, there's a lot of paradoxes. They're 
you know, happy with a tinge of reality, um, kind of blended together, but the feeling is, is very, very upbeat. Um, so anyway, uh, as you can tell, I'm very excited to talk to her about that. Um, before we launch into Sammy Ray and Friends, and before we um, uh, go into the, the um, premiere of If It All Goes South, um, we do have to cover some news. Um, so with that, I want to welcome on to the show Brody Levesque. Brody is the executive editor of the L.A. Blade, um, which is the source you should be getting your information from. Uh, welcome, Brody. How's it going today? Hey, Rob, and hey to all the listeners uh, out there. Uh, Rob gets all the happy feet and the happy, 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 and, yeah, I kind of get stuck with the not so happy. Speaking of, uh, aboard Air Force One today, in route to Albuquerque for a campaign event, uh, White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre told reporters in the uh, press gaggle that U.S. Embassy officials in the Russian capital city of Moscow met with imprisoned WNBA star Brittany Griner. Uh, quoting the White House press secretary, we are told she's doing as well as can be expected under the circumstances. In a separate tweet, U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price said, quote, they saw firsthand her tenacity and perseverance despite her present conditions. We continue to press for the immediate release of Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan and the fair treatment for every detained uh, American. Uh, the United States uh, considers both of, the, uh, of these particular Americans wrongfully detained. Griner is currently serving a nine-year prison sentence after a Russian court convicted her on the importation of illegal drugs after Russians' custom officials found vape canisters containing cannabis oil in her luggage last year at Sermatoya International Airport. Paul Whelan, a former Marine, is serving a 16-year prison sentence for espionage. Currently, the American government is working on uh, negotiating with the Russian government uh, to have those two released. So far, the negotiations haven't, quite frankly, produced any tangible results. Um, and another bit of news, and this one kind of angers me a little bit, a little uh, donut shop in the Brookside um, neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I've actually been around that neighborhood, it's a really nice area, um, was firebombed. Um, after it hosted a drag queen uh, art installation and had a little uh, soiree get-together. On a Ring.com uh, video surveillance, uh, the perpetrator was caught in the act of smashing a hole in the glass door, lighting a Molotov cocktail, and then launching it into the business. Fortunately, according to Sarah Swain, who's the owner of the donut hall, there wasn't a tremendous amount of damage done uh, however, uh, you know, she said, and I, I'm quoting her, you know, there's been a reaction of hate and we were the victims of somebody's malicious acts. Uh, but in the attempt to rain on our parade, the community's answered by showing overwhelming support. Uh, she's referencing a GoFundMe that was started uh, by the drag queens, which uh, actually paid for the damages uh done to the business. Uh, they raised an amazing amount of money in a very short period of time. 
However, this is also indicative of some of the acts of violence that we are starting to see on a reoccurring basis across the United States. As we start to move into the midterm election cycle, uh, it's actually gotten worse. What happened uh, to Ms. Swain and her little donut shop in Tulsa is no different than the threats that have been received across the United States by libraries and by public officials uh, as the far right has fixated on um, the LGBTQ plus community, particularly drag queen uh, shows, story time hours, things like that. Um, well, got last Brody, the, the, was yeah. was there anybody in the donut shop when this happened? No, it fortunately occurred uh, during closing hours. It was the shop was yeah. closed and uh, it was late at night. Um, so I would differentiate this from um, things at the libraries. It, the, and I'm not justifying their antics at the libraries, but the the concept at the libraries is drag queens, which have traditionally been adult shows, you know, being quote unquote exposed to children, like because a man dressed in the illusion of being a woman is somehow scarring of children, which that that's a hugely mistaken concept, but in the theory that they are somehow protecting children, acting out is one thing. But attacking a private business because of a drag queen show is kind of ratcheting it up to a whole new level. I mean, this is this is like declaring war on drag, essentially. And um, that's, that's actually ratcheting it up, like I said. Um, don't you well, think? In the last few months, the far right uh, has conflated everything together into just the LGBTQ plus community. They're not differentiating. They're 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 putting the drag at the tip of the spear, but everybody's been targeted. Use of the word uh, groomer, uh, use of the word pedophiles uh, has been rampant across uh, not only far right uh, media, but it's also bled over into these acts and threats of violence. What happened in Tulsa? It's just indicative of, like I said, the larger problem. Um, you know, it it would be nice to say, well, it's, you know, two degrees of separation of this, that, and the other thing, but the reality is it's all the same thing. I did a piece for the uh, Los Angeles Times this week, and I talk about the need for uh, LGBTQ people and their allies to get out and do the vote. The, um, this is going to be a severely consequential midterm election. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, most of the candidates running, especially down ballot, are running against LGBTQ people directly, particularly trans people. Trans issues have become a focal point in election cycles in 37 of the 50 states. On a national level, they're talking about trying to get a don't say gay law passed because Republicans you know, are 100% that they're going to get you know, control of Congress. Of course, naturally, there's a Democratic president who will veto any such move. But, and, you know, this is kind of the whole thing is, is that you have to look at it in overarching terms. Yesterday, Equality Florida sent me three advertisements, which I have up at the L.A. Blade. Uh, and these are digital ads that are being run as we start to move into the final stretch before Tuesday, next Tuesday. 
And and these are ads that are directly targeting the Republicans and especially Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, who has made the LGBTQ community um, part of the campaign platform. It's it's the issue. It's there's the target. You know, it's it's Biden in the economy and Biden in the border and Biden in the gays. Those those are the three talking points, and we've seen that across the country um, as the political spectrum becomes more and more toxic. So, um, and it's not just here, sadly. I, I wrote a piece last week, um, or actually not even last week, four days ago. Uh, the new prime minister of Great Britain, uh, Risha Sunak's inner cabinet ministers and top advisors are hugely anti-gay and especially transphobic. As a matter of fact, the British prime minister named, um, Member of Parliament Kemi Badenrock is Minister for uh, Women and Equalities, which Britain's LGBTQ uh, community falls under. And and this is a transphobe. There's no, as the Americans in the South would say, putting lipstick on that pig. She's actively right. anti-trans. <clears throat> so yeah, no, it's. it's, it's I mean, it's surprising to me that it's surprising to me how much anti-trans rhetoric is coming out of the UK. Um, I always thought of them as being a step ahead progressive-wise than the United States. But in terms of trans issues, not that, I mean, we obviously have our pocket of issues, and unfortunately they're um, making hay in Republican-led state houses. But the rhetoric out of the UK is really vile. And... um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, just interesting culturally. Um, anything else going on? Um, again, uh, you know, uh, a, a plea, if you will, to get out the vote. Um, I cannot no, no, no plea, much. no plea, no, no plea. Get out the vote. If you're listening to right. this and you're not voting, stop listening to our show. You get out and vote, period. Yeah. End of story. Yeah. Get out there and do it. You're needed. That has to happen. Anyway, what were you saying, Brody? Yeah, okay. And the last story. This is one that personally I found extremely offensive. Um, A tweet uh, was put out the other day by a young British actor who's only 18. His name is Kit Connor. Uh, Kit is uh, one of the two stars in the runaway hit uh, series by Seesaw Films and Netflix, Heartstopper. And he essentially was forced to out himself uh, after a tremendous amount of queer uh, baiting. And I personally find that highly objectionable. You know, I am i never really have been a big fan of outing, and I have really never been a fan of queer baiting. And to force a young person to, you know, find themselves where they are in a position where they feel an urge or a need to either out themselves or what the case is, it's just wrong. It's morally wrong. It's ethically wrong. Um, and to all you trolls out there, you know, I'm going to echo young Kit's tweet. Uh, and I quote Kit, back for a minute. I'm by. Congrats for forcing an 18 year old to out himself. I think some of you missed the point of the show. Bye. Uh, for those that haven't seen Heartstopper, uh, Heartstopper is based on the award winning graphic novel series by Alice Osman. Uh, and it it follows uh, a rather dynamic group of uh, school-age uh, adolescents in Great Britain 
uh, obviously fictional. And the two characters that are the lead, of course, uh, are uh, the ones that uh, Joe Locke as Charlie and uh, Kit as Nick Nelson uh, star as. And the whole point to the series and the whole point to the show, one of the underlying themes uh, is acceptance and tolerance. And the other part of the show is, you know, to let these people sort it out for themselves and how they make the determination and how they want to label themselves, uh, which is why Kit directly referenced that in his tweet. Um, I happen to agree with him. I think it was a travesty. I noticed on Facebook and quite a few posts that was like, oh, this is fantastic news, this, that, and the other thing, uh, which angered me even more. And I actually mixed it up with a couple of Facebook uh, commenters. And it's like, no, you don't understand. You know, they need to do that. It's like, no, people like Kit don't need to do anything. And you all are missing the point. You know, it just is wrong. So, anyway, that happened earlier in the week, too. Yeah. Yeah, just just a little context around that. You know, there's a huge pressure, um, and this comes around a lot of the trans um, actors and actresses um, that have been very vocal about non-trans people playing trans parts. And that has kind of ballooned into a feeling that virtually anybody who plays a part has to identify as the sexual orientation and or gender um, identity of the part that they're playing, which a lot of the people in the industry have pushed back on um, because actors are acting. They are acting roles. And in Heartstopper, um, this is a, you know, a high school student coming to terms with his sexuality. Um, and the fan base who identified greatly with him um, a, there was a portion of that fan base that were demanding this kind of purism of he has to be just like his character, which, in fact, ironically, he completely was. But like his character, he was on a trajectory of finding himself and within his space to be publicly vocal about it as he chose or not to choose. Um, exactly. and there's still – you know. There, most of the comments on Twitter, by the way, are supportive of him, the vast, 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 vast majority. Um, but there are still angry people, and most of them are young, who are, you know, ha- are putting out demands. And that is one thing that I think we have to deal with in the broader sense of quote-unquote community, is a lot of young people have grown up in an age when same-sex marriage was already legal, and a lot of battles had been fought and at least temporarily won, and the, the purism demands are just getting over the top. And I think this is a breaking point where we have a situation where it's like, okay, now you see evidence that you've gone too far. You know, it's like we need to chill out. We need to, to look at everything that gets expressed artistically and if it supports the community, if it supports the principle of you get to be your true authentic self, then we need to let it be and let it breathe and stop demanding that because somebody plays a bi character in a a movie and that they get seen holding the hands of somebody of the opposite sex, that isn't room to protest. And, you know, you don't get to demand people's lives be lived a certain way. So anyway, there's there's my two cents on that. 
Anything else, Brody? Can we move on to Sammy? No, Ray? that's pretty much it. I'm uh, now uh, now I'm ready to grab the popcorn and uh, and the drink and listen to you uh, in the art of the chat. Uh, and I'm excited uh, to hear what this young artist has to say. All righty, and with that, um, and without further ado, I want to welcome uh, Sammy Ray to the show. Sammy, how are you doing today? I'm well. How's everybody doing? <laughs> we're we're great. I'm so excited to talk to you. Your um your music is absolutely wonderful. I absolutely adore your voice. Your acting is superb, and I know that only from <laughs> your music videos. Um, but you you just fuse this effervescent um, charm in whether you're singing or whether you're dancing or whether your um your acting which uh, you take on some of the roles um take us back though you were uh you came to new york when you were 19 and how did you connect with the friends and pull this all together sure so i ended up in new york it's a bit of an interesting story uh my first year of college i grew up in a small town in connecticut my first year of college i was actually studying in Connecticut to be a sound engineer, audio technician. And I essentially wanted to be a mixing engineer on the other side of the um, mixing board. And I think it was just a product of my age. I was 18 at the time, and I was still in this very sort of small-town environment, small-town mindset. I was like, you know what, I just, this isn't, I, 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 did, I didn't believe in myself and my talent enough at that point, and I decided that I would go move to uh, New York City, and I was going to a college there um, to pursue uh, childhood education. I was going to be a teacher. And once I moved out of Connecticut and got to New York, I mean, it was a matter of weeks in this program where I realized, okay, not only is academia totally not for me, but I'm suddenly (laughs) in the, you know, epicenter of my industry, this industry that I've always wanted to be a part of. And I was just kind of forcing myself in that time period to go see as many shows and open mics and jam sessions as I could to kind of get a, a scope of what the the music scene was like in New York. And not only did I realize, you know, this is this is a scene that I can break into. I have what it takes. I'm not just, you know, the most talented, you know, singer in my small town in in, you know, Connecticut. I I I can really put a dent in this thing. I just got to put this band together. Um, so very quickly I decided to leave school, which was a whole conversation with my parents, as you can imagine. And, <laughs> I uh, bet. <laughs> suddenly I was um, living in Brooklyn, and I was working, I don't even know how many odd jobs. I was waitressing, and I was canvassing, trying to hand out flyers. I was babysitting. But I was building up funds and working all day and spending all night at you know, the small venues in New York City trying to get a scale for what this industry was like and really learn by jumping in because I had no context. I had no mentors. I didn't come from a, a musical family in any capacity, and I didn't know anyone. Um, so over the course of maybe that six months, I just kind of decided that I had to not be afraid of meeting new people and jumping in, and I would just kind of go see a show and fall in love with I don't know, say the basis and just say, hey, listen, I'm trying to put a band together. You sounded great tonight. Can we get coffee? Can we see if you want to play my stuff? Um, And we all just met on the scene like that. What's interesting about this band is we're seven people and we all come from 
different states around the U.S., different countries. We come from all different studies of music. And, you know, I met two of these guys while I was making children's music in, like, the birthday party circuit, which is actually very lucrative. I met some of these <laughs> folks in the uh, private event and uh, jazz circle, like straight-ahead jazz quartet gigs. Um, I met some of them through the Broadway community. And the thing that was clear from the very beginning was I knew I wanted a, a, to lead a band. I didn't want to be a, a solo artist. I knew I wanted to lead a large band. And I knew I wanted to lead a, a band of uniquely talented individuals who were all coming from very different you know, places and we could somehow figure out how to collaborate and, and create one cohesive sound. Um, but even as much as the talent, I, I knew that I wanted to create a long-term thing that could grow. I saw longevity. You know, how do we make this sustainable? And in my opinion, you know, you keep something sustainable over a long period of time by finding people who connect with another, want the same things, not just as artists and in their career, but as, as people. You know, you got to find people who vibe. And there were a few people playing for me in the very beginning. It was just, you know, not the best or the most apt guitarist I knew or bassist I knew. It was the only bassist or the only guitarist I knew. Right. And very quickly over time, um, you start to realize, you know, you can be as, as killing at, at, at your instrument as, as you can be as talented as all get out. But if the heart is not there, if you don't want to perform for the same reasons we want to perform, and, you know, quite simply, if we don't vibe, it's not going to last. So the group right. we've got now, um, you talked about it a little bit in the beginning, but we very much are a family. And, you know, we look at it, we look at it as there is no other way to do this innately bizarre thing that we do, which is, you know, live in a bus and traverse around the country and perform for, you know, a thousand to four thousand people every night and travel around. You can't really do that unless you take care of each other like a family. You can't do that unless you give each other permission to be who you are and uh, communicate and keep transparent. We really are just a, a yeah. kind of a group of siblings and each other's aunties and uncles and you know, we may do. It's been a really, really special uh, five years of, of growth. Um, we consider ourselves very lucky. You know, we've done a lot of, we really ascended to the place that we're at now to be able to tour as heavily as we are and, and push the number of tickets that we are across the country. You know, that happened very quickly for us. And we're, we're very, very grateful for that. Very grateful for it. Well, and that spirit is heard in the music. I mean, it's like that, how you're describing the band and behind the scenes you know, if if you listen to your music, that comes as no surprise, because it it, it 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 is such a blend of, you know, a lot of different kinds of genres. It's hard to pinpoint you, um, but mm-hmm. the infectiousness of it, and it, it's like almost every aspect of what is coming together in a song, you hear the mutual enthusiasm. So it's like you know the people behind it, you know, that are creating it are are integrating it's i mean it's, it really is an exciting thing um i'm kind of surprised that that to hear you say that you hadn't even had yourself as like the lead singer right on your radar because you wrote your first song uh follow me like the moon when you were 16 right yeah that's it that wasn't the first song i had written what's interesting about follow me like the moon is I was writing music from, I was writing songs from the time I was 12. And really all I had was like, you know, a kind of crappy keyboard that my parents bought me and I was grateful for that and a ukulele. And I wrote Follow Me Like the Moon when I was 16. I've been doing it for a couple of years, but I still didn't really know what was going on. And I certainly wasn't involved in the industry in any capacity. Um, 
and pretty much everything else was written as the band started to trickle in. And once I moved to New York, you know, our first EP, The Good Life, all of those songs were written in my first year living in New York. So you're really listening to me to discover, you know, what the heck it means to be a young adult trying to navigate an industry they have no experience in and uh, an environment which is completely different than what I was used to when I, I was 19 and 20, you know. Um, Follow Me Like the Moon, it, it just kind of came back around. It was something that I just kind of remembered and started singing again, and our manager and some of the band was like, oh, this is great, you know, let's develop this for the band. I knew I always wanted to be the front singer, band leader, I, I guess maybe I didn't explain that well enough. I knew I wanted to be a band leader. I was always looking to, like, Bruce Springsteen and, like, Freddie Mercury as guides. And right. I knew I wanted to be the front singer and the lead writer, but I never wanted to be a solo artist. I never wanted to do it with, you know, whatever band I could find to follow me on that particular tour or whoever was available for that particular gig. I knew that I wanted to build a large band of all the time players that we could, you know, I mean, this is how they did it in the sixties and the seventies. And some of these groups are still together and they're still touring. That was the model that I wanted to follow. I wanted to have a bunch of people together who could just kind of take this thing to the stars and see how long we could do it for. That was always the idea. And it's interesting. I'm just getting around to it now. We're in the middle of a, a national tour, and really, this is the first tour, and we've been doing this for a couple of years now. This is the first tour where I actually feel safe enough to go out on stage alone, and I've been doing a couple of solo numbers mm. on ukulele or banjo or keys, but that is really nerve-wracking to me. Um, I have a much easier time when I'm collaborating, right? There's an act of collaboration, and I know that I can lean on my players and I'm not alone up there no matter what happens. So it's actually quite difficult for me to be on stage alone. It's not something I'm very comfortable with. Um, and I knew from the beginning that was going to be the case. And I didn't want to leave it, leave that sort of collaboration and, and trust for my band into the hands of just whoever was available that day. I knew I wanted to, to build something with all the time players. Yeah, it's, it, I, I find it really fascinating, just your trajectory, because you don't – you're – you're not like caught in trends. It's like you, you, you know, your whole methodology and what you've created is kind of like almost a little bit more authentic old school than, you know, a lot of the, you know, TikTok, YouTube, um, you know, you know, I, don't, I scene, do not have the know. time. I just don't, <laughs> yeah. I've tried and I really just don't have the time for it. I don't have the patience because I, it, it's tough, and I'm watching some of these artists where they make something that goes viral, and I speak to our record label a lot about this. It's just not sustainable because trends don't last more than two weeks, right? three weeks. And if somebody is trying to kind of cater to what's going on in the moment, by the time that they develop that sound and produce it and release it, I mean the turnaround, song from recording, turnaround time from recording the song to getting it out you know, on streaming platforms is at the minimum six weeks to eight weeks. By the time they get that material, people are already over it, you know? And what inspired me in the yeah, oh, yeah. getting the music that I grew up listening to was that, you know, classic rock and those classic bands and this sort of timeless sound. And we get we get this kind of comparison very often where people are like, you know, you're not quite old new, new school and you're not quite new old school, but you're somewhere in the middle. And I think a, 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 that's also one thanks to the fact that we've got so many different studies of music um, coming in from all seven players and we don't even really know what you right. know, what what our sound is but we call it that friend so 
you know, we'll be arranging something and they, what happens here? Oh, it's the horn line or double horn line or here comes the bridge or here comes the breakdown or throw a finger symbol in here, group vocals, group clap, whatever it is, you know, that's that friend. You'll know it when you hear it. Yeah, and that's what makes it infectious because it's like the, um, I think it's um, in the, um, I'm trying to find the song. Uh, oh, Let's Throw a Party. It's like, it's like it, it, everything comes in and it's like you don't know really what to expect next, you know, what, what kind of sound you're going to hear next in the song, but it's all kind of that infectious rolling excitement um, about it, which is, yeah. You know, it's, it's just it's 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 almost impossible to stop listening to. I mean, it's it's just mm-hmm. hook on hook on hook, you know. Um, which is a good thing for you. Well, thank <laughs> you. We don't want people yeah, to stop I mean, listening. Um, I think that song is roughly like six minutes long or something like that, and it didn't necessarily get pushback from our team. It wasn't pushback, but it was like, hey, you know, radio and streaming platforms are always happier with three and a half minutes. And I understand that. I recognize that. Um, in every song that we arrange and everything that we put out, um, it is more important to me always that we are producing and arranging something that feels authentic to where we are in that moment. Um, and it, it's true to us. And I understand that that might hold us back at certain moments from, you know, we're not going to get national radio play right away with a six and a half minute song. You know, we might not grab every average pop music listener with something like that, but it really doesn't matter. Like we are okay with growing at the speed that we are in the ways that we are, because what we're making is always authentic and it seems to be working out. You know, we have no, we have no problem selling tickets. There are people out there I think, yeah. that are really interested in that sort of music, miss that sort of music and, and they relate to it. That That's an interesting song too, because I was in a, um, I wrote that song in the middle of 2020 and, you know, when the pandemic happened in March and that lockdown happened, we had lost, you know, we were going to go on our first national tour. It was six weeks. The entire thing was canceled. And for some yeah. reason, I just dove really hard into listening to the work of a lot of the songwriters I'd always, I'd always admired in kind of deeper cut. So a big one for me is I really fell in love with Paul McCartney's Wings. Um, I was listening to like deeper cuts of Queen and something that I thought was really interesting was a lot of these songs kind of sounded like three or four different songs all mashed into one song. And it really took the listener on an interesting journey that I'd never been on before. I thought that was a bit of a flex, you know, Paul McCartney you know, yeah. could write very well, could write four really wonderful songs and make himself an EP. He decided to put them all in one song. So that was a bit of an exercise. Uh, that one, it was, let's, let's try to put a couple different sounds into one song and um, chaos just seemed to be an overarching theme at that point with what was going on with the global social climate. And um, then we bring it back with that grand piano moment and kind of calm things down. But that song, again, it all comes down to we are more concerned about being our authentic selves and making music which feels authentic to us than we are catering to this, you know, TikTok trend algorithm or, right. you know, three-minute radio play we're just more concerned about making the music that we love and music that stretches us and music that's reflective of where we are at that point as musicians. Yeah. And that's the takeaway because when we listen to each of your songs, every, every single one of them, it's like the song is dictating its length 
and it's everything. It's like you're not feeling like, you know, you've, you've been put in this cube of what is expected or what the standard is or what, you know, scientists have decided the attention span of the audiences or anything, you know, external like that. It, it is true to its own self, which is kind of, a, it's sort of a meta aspect to what you're, you're having represented in the song in terms of the theme. Um, and, you know, I want to talk to you also about your lyrics, but I don't want to lose sight of the time um, because we have your song, um, If It All Goes South, queued up. And if you're okay with it, we'll play that whole song now. Does that sure work? Sure thing. Let's do it. Sure. Here we go. So brand new from Sammy Ray and Friends, and I'm sure this is going to be featured um, this coming uh, or on the 12th and 13th in L.A., If It All Goes South. It's alright to feel so good around somebody. It's alright to feel it might not always Would you like to? I would love to. As a matter of fact, I'm very glad you Maybe we're just a I think of it, the end 
Oh, my God, I could not love that more. (laughs) (laughs) That is so awesome. That is so awesome. I, you know, I, I love everything about it. It's so infectious. I, 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 you know, I could listen to it all day long. But I love the, just the spirit of it. It's just like sort of a life spirit about life. It's like, well, if it, if it all goes south, anyway, we had a lot of fun. You know, it's just, you yeah, know, it's it doesn't like work we, out. You know, we had a lot of fun, didn't we? <laughs> There's always yeah, we, we enjoyed the ride. Our, yeah. Yeah, a, a, a big theme in our music is there's always something to be learned, right? doesn't even matter if it hurts something to be learned if you know if it, if it works out the right way there's something to be learned um that's a huge theme in a lot of our lyrics yeah and that was one thing i wanted to ask you about because there's there's almost like a paradoxical um through line in a lot of of the songs that you guys have put out with they're both positive with a kicker <laughs> you know it's like it's like you know, it's yeah, the, yeah. the 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 yin and yang. It's it's like no song goes over the top in you know um, you know optimism you know that is untouched. It's all kind of grounded. Um, and I know um, Paul Simon was a big influence for you. Is was was his his lyrical gifts were those kind of influential on you on how you write lyrics. Yeah, hugely so. I, I something I love about Paul. I actually I I talk about him sometimes as a counterexample. I'm hesitant to say that though without explaining myself because I love him. Um, he's <laughs> so detail oriented in his writing. He's so descriptive. So many adjectives. So many little details. He's really good at transporting you to exactly where he is in the moment. Whatever he's thinking about. I've taught of of. I was adjuncting at a, a college and I was teaching a songwriting class and I kind of used Paul Simon as a counterexample to Billy Joel, right? Billy Joel is very detailed in his writing and his lyrics as well. A good example is like Anthony's song, Moving Out, right? You know, mm-hmm. is, right. you know, Mr. Cacciatore works on Sullivan Street across from the medical center. Great. I got it. But sometimes when you listen to Paul Simon, I like to use diamonds on the soles of her shoes as, as an example. Uh, it's just, an entire paragraph of what she's wearing, the way her hair is falling, what, you know, she's standing in the doorway next to the bathroom with the lamp and the shoes. <laughs> and, and it's wonderful. <laughs> right. Um, but he's more of a storyteller. I think sometimes than it, it can be a little bit too much sometimes. So I try to walk that line where I want to tell a story. I want to be very detailed because it's also an interesting prompt to be detailed and descriptive. It's fun to try to play words differently and see how, how to figure them out to make sense as lyrics, you know, rhyme schemes and all that. Um, but I also always want there to be a kicker, right? I can't just tell you a story. I've got to be teaching you something or trying to get right. a point across. I think that's the folk singer in me. Um, we've always got to have a point, you know? That yeah, sense? And that, that comes, yeah, no, it makes total sense. In fact, um, that, that leads me to the song that I want to ask you about, which is your song, Jackie Onassis, which is sure. completely characteristic of everything you just described. Because you're very descriptive in that, you're telling a story, and then there's this, I think, a huge point to that song. And tell me more about yeah. that. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Uh, well, the short version is I went to an all-girls Catholic high school as a queer teenager. <laughs> the the <laughs> long version is um, that is kind of a it's a it's a 
women's song. It's a love song to, you know, the, the, the romantically and in a platonic friendship sort of way, the young women in those really pivotal years for me who taught me how to embrace my own form of womanhood, which is actually interesting. It's a bit of a paradox because we all had to wear the same thing every single day and kind of stand in line. Um, but I made a few friends over the years there where um, it was just so wonderful as a young queer teen trying to figure out what does my womanhood look like? What does my queerness look like? Um, as I was meeting friends, I was really, I always had a hard time making friends when I was young, particularly female friends. Um, and to be in an environment where it was just all of us ladies, it was a, a really special place to figure out, you know, nobody has to be the same anything. You can be authentically yourself, and you can still honor your femininity in that. So Jackie O is a, a, it's a love song to, you know, some of my first crushes, and it's also a love song to all the young women and really important, uh, strong, powerful, confident female friendships that I made in that time period that really helped me learn how to, you know, embrace my, embrace my womanhood in the context of my queerness and not feel like either of them, you know, had to be muted to help the other one make sense. And, and I love seeing the way that that song's been kind of received. It's been received as a queer anthem. It's been received as a just kind of a straight ahead women's empowerment anthem. Um, and honestly, it really just started. I was kind of, I was just, I think I was in the tub or the shower or something. And I just had this little, Papa, Jackie Onassis. And I was thinking about her. I just loved that. I love the way that kind of like fell out of my mouth. Um, and I thought it was a really interesting, difficult prompt. Let me see how many things I can rhyme with Onassis. Uh, <laughs> and as I started to kind of think about her and develop that character in my head, she's just so uh, plainly beautiful. She's so triumphant in the face of uh, tragedy. I always thought she was very selfless. I thought she was a very poised um, leader and, and just a wonderful kind of plain, beautiful woman. Um, she's very magical and, and, and unique in the way that she is average in my opinion. Um, and so I kind of just developed a character that was kind of all of these, these young women in that time period for me that embodied the same sort of characteristics and they kind of all got balled up into this character, Jackie Onassis. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because you you chose to do it as Jackie Onassis and not Jackie Kennedy, and it's like the yes. Jackie Onassis yes. persona is kind of a more evolved aspect of her. Yes, and while I understand that is you know her second married name, I really like thinking about her as an individual separate from the husband that we all know her as attached to if that makes any sense. I wanted to sing about, oh, yeah. um, I wanted to pull attention to just her and not her as half of the, you know, presidential couple. I wanted it to be about her. So let's, let's, let's use a different name. You know, everybody knows Jackie Kennedy. Not as many people know Jackie Bouvier and certainly even less people, I think, know her by Jackie Onassis. So I wanted to, I, I it's interesting. I was imagining her as, you know, in the last chapter of her life as this kind of like fully accomplished woman, um, and just kind of put that character into a, a high school-aged girl and what was going on for me in that time period, if that makes any sense. Yes. <laughs> it, makes, it, makes, it makes absolutely 100% sense. I mean, it's – and I guess because uh, I look at it, too, from who she was at different points in time, and I don't know if you remember the show Mad Men 
um, the show about an ad agency in the early 60s. <clears throat> but in that yes. show, and that was her time, you know, when she was first lady, um, and in the show they actually have a discussion about women wanting to either be Jackie Onassis or Marilyn Monroe. It's like those were the two mm. iconic standouts of that time period. And so I kind of, you know, morphed um, your version of Jackie Onassis as to that point where you were describing her as, you know, the editor of, of you know, I forget which book company it was, that, um, you know, kind of that fully self-actualized later in life, you know, having gone through um, being an icon of, of different sorts and being her true authentic self and being an inspiration yeah. to a young, a young woman. I, I thought that was, was actually pretty profound. Um, so, you know, well, thank you. Excellent. Appreciate that. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate everything that you, you've written. Um, do you consider yourself more of a lyricist or a musician? Whoa. Not an identity crisis at 4 p.m. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I really don't know. I, hmm, I'm a lyricist first. It always starts with lyrics first. But then the lyrics are sort of informed by the melody that starts to show up shortly thereafter. Right. There's always sort of like a, baseline of lyrics and then the melody shows up and I finish the lyrics around them. Um, but I do consider myself a musician. I'm one of those people that believe, you know, one of the most difficult instruments to master is the human voice, if you will, because there's so many factors that go into that. And, you know, every day of my life, I'm doing so many things to make sure that I'm keeping my instrument safe, right? With the saxophone player is done playing saxophone, he's going to put it in his case and break it down and not use it anymore for the rest of the day. If it's cold, you got to be careful. If it's hot, you know, you got to cool it off. Um, so I really do think of my voice as my instrument and I consider myself a talented musician and that right and a talented arrangement brain yeah. as well. But um, I've always been a lyricist first, I would say. No, I, that, that I see it emanating that way, but I, I truly value your voice. I think your voice is incredibly unique and, um, I keep hearing other, you know, different uh, vocalists kind of coming through in a little bit. Like even even with um, if, if All Goes South, it's like at the very beginning, I'm starting to hear a little bit almost Billie Holiday. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's mm -hmm. but but you have this range that, that isn't, oh, she's just a blah, blah, blah. It's like it's it's much more than that. Um, well, I but one thing, hope I'm not just anything. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. No, no limits, no limits. Um, one thing, too, and speaking of no limits, um, even though you guys do your own material and it's very, very infectious, you also have done a couple of covers, um, like Everybody, mm -hmm. Everybody Wants to Rule the World and um, Last Christmas were a couple of covers you've done. What, what do you look for when you cover somebody else's material? We look for something that we can uh, make our own, something that somebody knows very well, but still, um, how do I explain? A song that you know well enough that we don't need to spoon feed you the hook. It's ingrained right. enough in your brain that we that we can kind of branch out and 
make it our own and with everybody wants to rule the world that's just a song i think so many folks know and it's relatively plain the melody is pretty much the same every time there is a guitar breakdown but the solo isn't you know really intense it's a very listenable song so we wanted to see what it would look like if we imagine that as a much hard hitting much harder hitting rock song and when it came to last christmas to be honest with you we were like what's a song that has a lot of potential to be super killing but people are really tired of and they don't want to hear anymore and we were all like oh my god let's do that last christmas song um and let's try to breathe and uh, breathe a new life into it and, and that's kind of how we ended up with it well that that's awesome um in our last few minutes tell me about the current tour and what people can expect it's pretty wild this is the if it all goes south tour our, our previous um national tour was the follow me like the moon tour um which was following our single follow me like the moon and we kind of i like to say because we like to put on a show which is kind of a full show from top to bottom there's very little moments of no music there's you know costume changes we have a lighting design set pieces all kinds of stuff going on um, a very immersive experience for our, for our audience members and a, a, a place for our community to come together and, and celebrate each other and get to know like-minded people. The Follow Me Like the Moon tour, I like to say we set the bar low. You know, we were we were in we were in space. We nailed it. You know, silver sequins and you know backdrop was kind of astral stuff, and we wore black and silver every night, and it was great, right? With the If It All Goes South tour, we were meditating on this, if it all goes south, well, we're going to have a lot of fun, so let's just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Um, so it's this very kind of loud, lots of patterns on stage, um, and somehow it all seems to, not unlike our music, is all pretty cohesive and seems to figure itself out and work together. We had this cool initiative going this time around where I asked the audience members to bring us like silks and scarves and bandanas that we could decorate ourselves and the stage with so that we could kind of be taking that community with us in every single city and even from day one i was just overwhelmed i mean we got we started the tour in austin texas i expected to get a handful a night and we got over 100 that first night um so the stage is just kind of covered in all these different textiles and and different patterns and all of them are a gift from somebody out in our fan community in a different city um, who wanted to contribute to the show, and I think that's that's a perfect example of what what our audience experience is like. You know, if the audience doesn't show up and support us and buy tickets and all that, we're literally just seven people jumping up and down on stage. Um, we like to do everything that we can to to say thank you as many ways as as we can. We don't take it for granted that we get to do this thing for a living, and and we're not just um, hobby musicians. You know. Um, yeah, you know, there's no, a lot going no, on absolutely. on this tour. It's a really wild ride, and we're having a great time. It's awesome. And, again, um, that for L.A. listeners, that will be November 12th and 13th at the Fonda Theater. And, Sammy Ray, where do people find out more? What, what websites, et cetera, should they check out? You can look at our Instagram at Sammy Ray Music. You can check out uh, com or across all your streaming platforms. Tickets for the rest of this uh, national tour are on sale, and we're very excited to get over to California and play a couple good shows. Really, really excited about it, and I hope if you don't have a ticket yet, you go get one and you come check us out and join the party. You, you, you must do that. You will have an absolute fabulous evening. I 
can I can guarantee it just you know it's it it is just completely infectious. Well, you heard the song, you know, more of that and you know <laughs> that that is an absolute treat. So Sammy Ray, thank you so much for joining us today. I I appreciate you. I love your music and I'm listening to it all the time and um I've been trying not to overly fanboy all over you. Um <laughs> but, um the, you're you're an awesome talent and and i i can't wait to see what what all comes next well thank you much i appreciate all that it's been a joy today yeah. well again folks check it out at at the fonda and um that is it for us today at rated lgbt radio i want to thank brody levesque and uh his work both on this show and as the editor of the la blade you can find that at losangelesblade.com, and you should be reading that every single day because it is original news, very high level of journalism, and very centered on the LGBTQ community. So if you want to know the scoop of what is going on there, not rumor, not um, you know, National Enquirer crap, um, check, out, check out the LA Blade. As for us, we will see you again here next week with another fabulous show i guarantee it and we look forward to talking to you again then you've been listening to rated lgbt radio 